Thank you for taking time to listen to this week's message from Horizon West Church. You can find even more content, including video archives of this and other past messages at horizonwestchurch.com. And if you're in the Horizon West area, be sure to visit us sometime soon. Now enjoy this podcast from Horizon West Church. team, thank you for leading us. It's good to see you all. Good morning again. Welcome. I uh, got to meet several people between services, some leaving the first, some coming to the second, who are actually new not only to the church, but new to our community and our area, which is not terribly surprising because it's like one of the fastest growing communities ever. But I will offer a public service announcement. If you're not familiar with Florida weather, uh, it's basically really, really hot or really wet or some combination of the two. Uh, Someone said about one place, and I think it applies to where we live, if you don't like the weather, just wait five minutes, because it'll change. And so, a few nights ago, several uh, nights ago actually now, my family was out doing kind of an evening excursion. Uh, It was a beautiful sunny day, and everything was great. And then we noticed some wind gusts, no rain, but you guys have been seeing this, right? Like in the afternoon, wind's just like kicking. And we come home to this in our backyard. Now, this was not manufactured by Picasso. Uh, What happened is that the wind apparently flipped this thing like two times based on where it was laying. And I should have gotten the picture when it was upside down because it looked even worse. Um, I have since taken a sledgehammer and my big muscles to this thing. I'm kidding. You can laugh. And, uh, but I've, but I've basically gotten it back into somewhat working order. And so uh, that's our trampoline. But I tell you the story for this reason. We're going to talk today about impulse, impulses, and impulses work a lot like a sudden windstorm. They come over us quickly and sometimes seemingly out of nowhere. The impulse to anger, the impulse to anxiety, whatever that might be. And typically, like a trampoline in a windstorm, the effects are not great. The consequences are often damaging or even devastating. We've all seen a child in a grocery store throwing a fit, and what happens when they throw their head back? They get a little knot on it, right? Or maybe there is a man who perhaps is a pastor and in his younger years punched a wooden door in anger and broke his right hand. That could be a story that we might refer to. Or, and this is not a personal story, but maybe you've seen somebody get into a road raid incident on the highway, on the turnpike or the 408 or something, and It can be devastating, can cause an accident, can be an assault. I mean, impulses, if they're not tamed, if they're not redirected, can have devastating effects. I want to talk about two related but slightly different terms. The first is impulse, the second is desire. Desires are, I believe, are God-given longings for the things that are good Genesis 1 says that we were created in the image of God. The Latin term for that is imago Dei. And so we have desires that come straight from the heart of God. It is good that we desire survival and connection and things like justice, to live in a safe and protected world. Those are good desires because you're created in the image of God and he loves those things as well. But there's this other thing of impulse, which is when our desires get hijacked 
And what happens is now we're not finding legitimate ways to satisfy our desires. We're finding the quickest, easiest route to what we believe will satisfy our desires. And so we'll talk about why this is, but James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, it's a book in the New Testament. James says this, know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be uh, quick to listen or hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger, or we might read the impulses of God, do not produce the righteousness of God. Let me ask this question and seek to answer it as well. Why is there conflict between our desires and our impulses? It seems like those things should not be in conflict with each other. They, they seem like one should be the outgrowth of the other, and yet there is. The truth is that every philosophy of life has to grapple with the issue of human desire and impulse. For Buddhism, the way that desire is handled is desire is the cause of pain or suffering. The, the reason that we have emotional pain in our lives is we wanted a certain outcome that we didn't get. Therefore, in Buddhism, the goal is to eradicate desire. We experience no pain and also no pleasure. In Islam, the way that desire is handled is through repression. So whatever swirling fantasies exist in the mind, if you'll just repress those now, those toxic and often evil desires can be manifest for you in the afterlife, a la 70 virgins enslaved to you for all of eternity. Nobody's asking the women, is that good for them? Just repress. Hinduism is much more complicated in the way that they deal with desire, but it is one of the four, what are called purushartas, They're the, the primary goals or objectives of life. Human desire is one of those. And then an uh, idea that you may or may not be familiar with is hedonism. The hedonist is the person that lives for physical pleasure. So for the hedonist, the goal of desire is simply to gratify it as quickly as possible. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I desire sex, I gratify that desire. That is the guiding virtue of life. None of these I want to establish, and I hope that you'll agree, can help me to wrestle with the conflict that actually exists between the impulses and the desires of my own body. And so I'm going to turn to the Bible. And I want to, without going there, just for the sake of time, I want to establish two things. First, that our desires are good because we are created in the image of God. That's, that's Genesis 1. But the second idea that you need to be equally familiar with is that we have cultivated an alternative or illegitimate way of satisfying those desires, and that is our impulse. Our impulses do not lead us to the way of life. In other words, though Lady Gaga will say, I was born this way, I'm on the right track, Scripture would say that the way that we're born actually doesn't put us on the right track. Because what naturally emerges is impulses, and what we've got to do is dig deeper than our impulses, our surface desires, to get to the good heart of God. Listen to how the Apostle Paul wrestled with these concepts in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but instead I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, then I agree that the law is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but instead it is sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. Does this sound like a man in some conflict with himself? Would anybody agree, you don't have to show your hand, but would you agree that that is also true in your life? Impulse, desire, desire, and impulse. All of this framework, I believe, is necessary to explain what Paul is about to jump into with a church in a place called Corinth. And so we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, New Testament. I'll have it on the screens behind me. If you've got a Bible or a Bible app, I encourage you to follow along with me. I want to read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to address the impulses and actions that are emerging from this body of believers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. You may recall earlier in the series, if you've been attending, that I shared with you that Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, is basically an explanation of how life works in the kingdom of God. Or, at some points, many points, how life does not work in the kingdom of God. And so, for instance, people in the perfect and eternal kingdom of God, they don't bicker about who among them is greatest. That's chapters 1 and 4. In the perfect kingdom of God, people don't boast about their human or earthly wisdom. That's chapters 3 and 4. In God's kingdom and life in the kingdom, people don't have sex with their stepmother. That's chapter 5. He gets very specific. And then what he does in chapter 6, and remember, Paul is one of the most brilliant men that ever lived. Paul is going to give us a list that, although important, is certainly not exhaustive about additional attributes, characteristics, lifestyles that are not compatible with life in the kingdom of God. And so he says things like greed and drunkenness and fraud now, we could camp out on those three issues and do a whole series for people in our life in our modern age, right? And people right here where we live. Do you know anybody who works way, way too many hours because they're obsessed with money and their family pays the price? Do you know anybody that has defrauded somebody out of something that belongs to them? Do you know anybody that's committed adultery? Like, Paul lists a lot of things here. And he doesn't parse them out and say one is better or worse. He says all of these are examples of how life in the kingdom of God does not work. But there is one in here that because of our culture and because it's a hot button issue, I want to spend just a little bit of time on. Because Paul says in verse 10, men who practice homosexuality. Now, one of the things you need to know is that the word men does not exist in the original Greek. Not, not the word doesn't exist. Paul doesn't use it in this passage. So in other words, that is supplied in the English translation to say basically those who practice homosexuality. It is not a male or female issue. It's the action that he's getting to. Does that make sense? So those who practice homosexuality, 
And it's important that you understand there are two Greek words that Paul uses to describe the action he's referring to. Those words in Greek are these, malakoi and arsenokoitis, okay? And the reason it's important for you to know what those mean is they together mean both the dominant and submissive person in a consensual, same-gendered sexual act. Okay, is that specific enough of what Paul is saying? And the reason that it's important for you to know that is twofold. First, some have been assaulted. Some have experienced sexual abuse and trauma. If that is the case, you are a victim and the heart of God breaks for you and there is healing. What Paul is saying is when we consensually submit ourselves to sexual acts outside of the will of God, whether homosexual or heterosexual, it is what the Bible calls sin. And some have taken this verse and they go, oh, Paul's referring to those who, who like take advantage of other people. Those who, who push against somebody's boundaries and wishes. And it's not. It's just simply not. I said it in the first service. I feel the need to say it again is, as heavy a weight as I feel of being a husband and a father, the greatest burden that I carry is to teach the Word of God with truth. And it's tough sometimes, and it's not culturally acceptable sometimes, but I would be lying if I saw something other than this, what Paul is getting at. And so, let me read a statement that I read a few weeks ago, and just again, this is important for the sake of clarity. I want to read for you the church's position on this subject matter. This is on both the Horizon West Church website and also on First Orlando's Statement of Faith. We teach that the family is an institution created by God and that God's vision for the family is the uniting of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime. Human sexuality is a gift created for expression within the boundaries of marriage. Now, it is equally important to say that while we believe that is the clear truth of the Word of God, we also believe in the overwhelming and abundant and superabundant grace of God. And we believe that there is nothing that God can't forgive and God can't pardon and God can't welcome a person home. Remember, the prodigal was in a very distant country. And so please don't hear a message of condemnation. What I seek to offer is clarity. Let me ask a question that might come up in your mind as you read this. Does this mean, is Paul uh, referring to or implying that those who practice homosexual or same-gendered sexual acts are not saved? And to answer that question, we would have to ask a second question, which is, if that is the case, then we also have to apply it to those who are greedy and adulterers and deceptive Like, it's a one-size-fits-all, right? He's either saying that or he's not. And it's important because what we can be in danger of is saying, well, this sin disqualifies, but this one doesn't. Or worse, we evaluate a person's eternal soul just based on the surface of what we see. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be the judge or jury of a person's soul. That's God's job, not mine. But I can say to somebody based on the Word of God, What what Paul uses, he uses the word inheritance. You know what an inheritance is? It's a good gift bestowed by a loving parent or grandparent. The way that you receive an inheritance is you come with open hands and receive it. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, while you're clinging to these sins, and he lists a bunch of them, it's impossible to receive the good gift of God's kingdom. And your loving father wants more and he wants better for you. 
Let me define two more terms. One I've used, that's the word impulsive. And I'm going to define that as the things we do by instinct. You don't have to think about the things that come by impulse. They just happen. But another word that we're going to look at for a minute is the word compulsive. And I would define compulsive as the things that we do by intention. Maybe it started as an impulse, but through force of habit, it became a compulsive act. We find ourselves unable to stop doing it. What I think Paul is doing here is he's describing a situation in which impulsive desires, be it for overeating or indulging in sex or whatever it is, had become compulsive life-identifying habits within the church. And Paul says, time out. This cannot be. This is not fitting for life in the kingdom of God. Second Peter chapter 1, I want to go to uh, quickly here. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. You may remember him as the guy that walked on water, the guy that denied Jesus at the crucifixion. Peter, in his epistle in chapter 1, he lists a bunch of qualities that are true of people who follow Jesus. They grow in things like brotherly kindness and, and love and charity. And then Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, 8 and 9. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And I don't know, but I think what Peter is driving at is this idea that if we persist in unrepentant and even unconvicted sin, in other words, I go, man, I don't feel bad about it. Celebrate it. It's who I am. And, and we persist in unrepentance. Brothers, sisters come around, hey, this is not good. This is not fitting for life in the kingdom of God. And we have no conviction and no repentance, then we should have no confidence that we are saved. And I think what Peter's doing is saying, in some cases, God may even remove from us our sense of assurance and security and confidence because God wants to jolt us out of our sinful way of living. He's gracious enough to, to say to us, you're walking toward the edge of a cliff and it is through repentance that we turn back to the Lord. But let me say this also. The point is not at all to figure out how deep into sin or how long in its grip a person must be before they are disqualified. The Bible has a different objective that we're going to make clear in just a moment. Let me get back to the issue at hand. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, we're going to see that the Corinthians had become so comfortable in their sin that they weren't even worried about it, and they had adopted two expressions that were popular in the culture around them. Remember, there is a church in this city of Corinth, but there is also a lot of the Corinthian way of thinking that has gotten inside of the church. And so here's what Paul says in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will raise us up also by his power. Two expressions, and you see that because in the Bible, and you saw it on the screens behind you, it's in, it's in quotes, right? Let me let you in on an academic secret. The Greek language did not have quotes, C couldn't do that. So what interpreters of the Greek did is they said, Paul seems to be, and there's evidence that he was, 
naming expressions that were popular in the culture around Corinth, namely two, all things are lawful for me, and food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And these were used as excuses. The first was an excuse for all kinds of sin. Perhaps they were saying things like this, hey, if God's grace is for me, if God has already forgiven me, then I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful. And Paul is going to come behind that and say, hang on, but not all things are beneficial. When I was youth pastoring years ago, kids would sometimes ask the question, how far is too far with my girlfriend or my boyfriend? To which I would respond, how close can you get to a edge of a cliff before you fall off? And the answer is, well, I'm trying not to get to the edge of the cliff. And it's like, that's the point, right? If it's not helpful to your spiritual life, we shouldn't be asking the question, what can I get away with? But rather, what can glorify God? And there are things that you may be allowed to do that are not constructive to your spiritual life or your life with God. And then the second one, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. This was used specifically for those who wanted to indulge in gluttony. It's like, man, God made food and food is milkshakes and steaks and french fries and I have a stomach. God made my stomach. So it's meant to indulge, right? God made food, God made stomach for food, food for the stomach. And Paul says, yes, but God's going to destroy them both and actually... Both food and your stomach were made not for indulgence, but to glorify God. And then what Paul does, this is so brilliant, he turns that same idea, the way we engage with food, we understand that if we don't discipline ourselves in what we eat, it can have terrible consequences to our health. And Paul says, and also, your bodies were not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. So in other words, the same way that we understand the potentially dire consequences of an unhealthy lifestyle, Paul says, don't use your body for sexual activity or engagement that is not glorifying to God or that brings you harm. You may be allowed to smash your thumb in a door, but it's a dumb thing to do, right? This is the point that Paul is making. And going even further than that, Paul says, not only that, but there is someone living inside of you by faith whose sole objective is to glorify God. And that's where he turns his attention next. Go back again to verse 14 with me of 1 Corinthians 6. And God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We have thus far talked about impulsive desires and compulsive desires. Let me introduce one more concept, and that is the idea of expulsive desires. Say expulsive. To, to illustrate this idea, I'm going to borrow from a, a pastor named J.D. Greer at Summit Church. And J.D. Greer explains this concept in this way. Imagine there's a, a teenage boy who is 
dating a girl and that girl's dad happens to be an army ranger. And his uh, ability to end the boy's life is known clearly, right, and stated. And the dad has said to this teenage boy, hey, you can hang out with my daughter, you can be friends, but you're not to lay a hand on her. One day the boy is over at the house and dad is gone. He's not supposed to return for an hour. Start getting going. They're on the couch. One thing's leading to another. And all of a sudden, they hear the sound of dad's pickup truck rolling into the driveway way sooner than they expected. Now, five seconds before that moment, if you were to ask this teenage boy, what is the most overwhelming desire that you have right now? He's going to say, to have sex with my girlfriend. There's nothing that can stop that. I'm, I'm fully, in the, the body, everything, he, that's what he would say. Until he hears the sound of dad's pickup truck or her dad's pickup truck in the driveway. Now he's got a different highest desire. Not die, like stay alive. And all of the sudden, what will overwhelm him is not the desire for this girl's body. He will be quickly getting out of that place and running for his life so as not to die. This is the point of expulsive desire. We cannot walk in the way of God by simply white knuckling and going, God, I know I should and I'm going to try harder. The way that we glorify God is by having our desires for lesser things replaced by desires for greater things. This is what Thomas Chalmers, an ancient theologian, calls the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. The, the principle is that we overcome sin not by willing ourselves to do better, but by replacing those sins with greater things. Listen to what Chalmers says in that book. He says, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of and which if taken away without substitution of another, something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. Now, quick word to parents. Parents, I wanna, I wanna caution you, I wanna admonish you not to parent in such a way that you say, hey, don't do that. Stop doing that or you'll get punished. Because listen, kids' desires and impulses are going to lay hold of something. So give them something better to lay hold of. Live in such a way, teach in such a way, discipline in such a way your children that they get a vision for God that is so much greater than the lesser things the world would want to offer to them. And Paul, taking on the role of a father to the Corinthian believers, says, Corinthians, desire something greater than these lesser things. I want to share on a very personal level. I have not been shy over the years from time to time to do this. But for much of my teenage, really all my teenage years and well into my adult life, I struggled mightily with sexual purity. For me, that took the form of online viewing of images and videos. And I was 15 years old when the internet got into our home and that was a recipe for disaster. Can anyone relate? <laughs> We figured out how to delete our history before our parents knew how to work the, the machine. And those impulses over time, impulses to lust and to gratify myself sexually with those images, became compulsive habits, became a way of life. And I would try harder. And I'd read the Bible more. And I'd make promises, God, never again. But what was lacking 
was the expulsive power of a new affection. I want to share with you two experiences that I had, and these aren't like events, these are just realities that have been birthed in my life that have over the last 10 years begun in greater and greater ways to take the place of lesser desires. The first is this, to experience cleansing. The desire to walk in cleansing. Listen again to 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11. Paul says, and such were some of you. Remember, he's reiterating this list of of sins. And I love that Paul says this. There is no shame in what we were. Paul says, some of you fit into every single one of these categories. And it's okay. That's what you were, but you were what? You were washed. After about two and a half weeks this past Friday, I finally was able to get in my yard and mow because between the rain and the wind and the heat, I just, it was hard to do, right? I found like this perfect two-hour window. And y'all, I came into the garage and I was dripping sweat from all different places. I don't even sweat easily. I can, I can work out and not sweat. It was like, there was like a stream from my nose. That's how hot it was. And then I got in the shower. And I normally take a hot shower. I had this thing turned all the way to cold and it was not cold enough. And I sat under that shower head, like, ah. And I got clean. And I can promise you, when I dried off, when I stepped out of the shower, the last thing in my mind to do, I'm going to go back in the yard. Why? Because when you get a taste of cleansing, what you want is cleansing. What you want is to be able to lay your head on your pillow at the end of the night and go, by the grace of God, this day wasn't perfect. The thoughts weren't perfect. The actions weren't perfect. But by the grace of God, I've taken one step closer to the image of God restored in me by faith in Christ. I am clean by the blood of Jesus. Praise God for the cleansing. So that was first. And then the second thing that began to replace was the experience of connection. First cleansing and then connection. One more time in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. Now Paul, again, he's unpacking this idea of, of believers, followers of Jesus, uniting with a prostitute. And it's not a far cry because actually in the city of Corinth was a temple where prostitutes would call out to the men of the streets to engage in sex acts that they believed glorified their gods. Now that's pretty jacked up, right? But Paul understood that they were experiencing this pressure day after day. And Paul doesn't say, shame on you. Doesn't say, take a different route. He says, don't you know the Holy Spirit of God is in you? In other words, what Paul's saying is the issue is not so much how we behave, it is to whom we belong. If you belong to God through faith in Christ, then enjoy the purity and the cleansing of living in that and being connected not only with God through faith, but also through faith with our brothers and sisters who are also struggling in the same ways. There's a verse in 1 John that I want to close with. John also, one of Jesus' closest followers, And I don't know that he's thinking about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I don't know that he's thinking these exact concepts, but but listen to how closely this relates. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. Do you hear both cleansing and connection in that? This is God's desire for those of us who would enter the kingdom of God, those who would live by faith. It was that verse 10 years ago, as I continued to struggle in my sin and not knowing where to turn or who to look to. And fortunately, I had some friends, one in particular, that I knew I could be completely transparent with. He had begun a recovery journey recently himself. And we were sitting at a restaurant in the middle of an afternoon, and I started to talk about the past year of my life. It, particularly that year, had been a bad one. The things I was doing, the places I was going on, online, and I said, man, I, this is just what it is, and, and I need help. And that friend didn't shame me. He didn't throw a, a, a Bible at me. He simply repeated this, these words. He said, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. That night, by the grace of God, with all the courage I could muster, I had a gut-wrenching conversation with my wife. And on the other side of that was the first step into freedom. For the last 10 years, not been a perfect journey, but it's been a whole heck of a lot better to walk in transparency, to live before you, before my children and my wife without secrets, without hiding, without shame and guilt, cleansing, connection, connection and cleansing. This is God's will for us, and it is possible. This morning, I asked that friend who sat across the table from me 10 years ago to be present and available because his name is Simon Hunt, and he leads our Celebrate Recovery ministry today. I asked Simon's permission, which he gladly gave. Simon's in the back. Would you wave Simon back there where you're at? His wife, Annie, is down here as well. And I want to admonish you, if you or someone you know is struggling with compulsive sin, things that you don't know how to break free of. Christ is the answer, but Celebrate Recovery can certainly help. They meet every Monday night at our Evolve campus in Ocoee. They meet at 6.30 on Monday nights. And it's a group of people, and, and their struggles are all different, and your struggle may not look the way mine did, did or does. But whatever it is, there is hope and there's freedom for you. And so would you find them in the lobby after the service and talk to them about how, they, how you can find freedom. Let me take the stigma out of this. You may go and talk to them for a friend. Where nobody's going to be like, oh, why is that person talking? Like, go and find them and get the information you need as we together look to bring freedom to the world through Christ. Let me say one last thing and then pray. Everything that we do at Horizon West Church, from celebrate recovery to foster and adoption to sending missionaries to Nigeria and uh, Middle East and, and uh, other places— all of that is made possible because of God's will for us, his plan for us, and also because people give. And so if you came prepared to give, this isn't an ask for first-time guests, but if you came prepared to give, easiest way to do that is to text the word GIVE to 40777, or you can give a gift, a gift in the kiosk on your way out, um, a gift in hand, and that can be something that you do as well. Can I pray for us? Father in heaven, I thank you for what is a somewhat challenging word to us today. Challenging because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have emptied our pockets of the stones that we might otherwise throw. 
God, we all stand on equal footing at the cross. We have nothing but your grace, nothing but your mercy. We say like the Corinthians, so were we like that. But we were washed in the blood of Jesus. God, I thank you for it. God, if there's someone in the room today, a man, a woman, a, a young adult, a child, God, someone who has not yet tasted the cleansing and the connection and the freedom that comes from salvation, God, would you give them the grace today to turn to you and be saved? And Lord, would you help all of us walk in a way worthy of the calling we've received to the grace and glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you all. We're not going to close with a song. If you're a first-time guest, I'd love to see you at the Blue New Year tent. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the Horizon West Church Podcast. If you were inspired or encouraged by something you heard today, share it with a friend. For more information like our service time, location, and other info, be sure to visit us online at horizonwestchurch.com. Have a great week.